It's Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm Albert Moeller, and this is The Briefing, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. Okay, let me ask you to confront yourself with an honest question. Do you respond more powerfully to a positive political ad or to a negative political ad? Oh, I know you think of yourself as a positive person, and you're wanting to say that you respond more clearly to a positive political ad, but the research shows you're probably lying to yourself. Most of us, it turns out, seem to respond more viscerally to a negative political ad than to a positive political ad. Now, that might be a bit of an overstatement because what we're really talking about is what kind of advertising tends to move the vote or to move the polling data. And this is where it comes down to the fact that the negative ads are now gaining ascendancy over so-called positive ads because the negative ads tend to have more demonstrable effect. And that's why you're seeing a lot more of them. You don't see that many ads with a politician saying or someone saying on behalf of a politician, this person's done a great job. Instead, you see ads of someone coming out and saying this person, if elected, will bring an end to the human race. All ice cream will melt and more children will be lost in the woods. I mean, that is basically the way this kind of advertising game is played. It is important to recognize that this is not entirely new, but at the same time, it's also kind of important to recognize it is newly urgent, and the evidence is pretty newly overwhelming. Gerald Seib wrote an interesting article on this for the Wall Street Journal. He's asking the question, what have negative political ads done to us? The subhead in the article is this, candidates increasingly rely on personal attacks and fear-mongering to win office, leaving many Americans disillusioned with democracy. And so, as Gerald Seib's asking the question, What have negative political ads done to us? He kind of means us as the nation, as the the civilizational project. It's done damage because it brings negativity and cynicism into the equation. But, of course, the question everybody's asking is, well, why do they work better? Why do negative ads work better than positive ads? And the answer probably has something deep to do with the structures of human thought and emotional response. And this is where our response in terms of repugnance or fear or a kind of flight anxiety, that turns out to be more powerful than something that might be more magnetic or attractive or positive. What that says about us? Well, it says we're complicated creatures for one thing, and we probably aren't even fully honest with ourselves about what might interest us or what might change our mind or even what might get our attention. Seib writes, quote, certainly there are many factors driving cynicism and polarization, cultural disagreements, economic inequality, social media, and the gerrymandering of legislative districts, which gathers like-minded voters into virtual echo chambers. But he writes, political operatives in both parties have raised concerns about the cumulative effect of years of attack ads pounding home the message that the system is dishonest and corrupt, end quote. Seib gets to the point when he tells us, quote, negative ads now make up more than half of all political ads in the top media markets and considerably more than half in some highly competitive races. This also gets really interesting. Listen to this section, quote, beyond attacks, a big share of TV spots are contrast ads, which combine a negative message about an opponent with a more positive message about the candidate running the ad. Quote, purely positive ads touting the virtues of a candidate make up only about a quarter of the total, end quote. So positive ads, about 20 
5% and decreasing, according to these indicators. Negative ads, attack ads, and these contrast ads. They're the majority of the ads now. Okay, contrast ads rather than attack ads. What's the difference? Well, it's subtle. That also should tell us something. So the contrast ad is when candidate commercial comes out saying, if you vote for this person, then here's what you're going to get. All kinds of horrible, bad things. Here's what this person's effect has been on this issue. On the other hand, you could vote for this person, and then there will be sunshine and light. There will be a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, obviously, this works both ways. You can have Democrats run this on Republicans. Republicans run this on Democrats. And it's also very clear that the distinction between an attack ad and a so-called contrast ad just might be in the eye of the beholder. But there's something else here that should also get our attention, and that is that evidently these ads produce. Now, that's not to say that any given ad produces this number of votes or this movement on the, the meter, so to speak. But it is to say people are running these ads because they work. And in one sense, you could say, well, that's just an impression. Well, but now we're living in an age of so much information and data there's a pretty good tracking mechanism to know what's working and not working. And evidently, advertising is working. So we are told of one particular media market where just a few years ago, there would have been 20,000 political ads about 20 years ago. We are told that in this media market, Phoenix, this election cycle, it'll be more like 100,000 ads. So I'll do the quick math for you. That's a five-fold increase in about 20 years. And it's an increase towards the quantity of the ads. It's also a tilt towards the attack or contrast ad, the negative ad, rather than a positive ad. It is expected that the current election cycle will represent a significant increase, a double-digit percentage increase, even over 2020, just four years ago. My favorite sentence in the Gerald side piece is this, and I don't think he meant it in any way to be humorous. I'm just going to read it as straight as I can. Quote, the strongest antidote might be more examples of candidates who stay positive, but there simply aren't many, period. But, you know, this is where Christians also have to flip the equation and say, you know, this does tell us something about candidates. But the whole point of this article is it tells us even more about the electorate. That's the bottom line. All right, now we're going to turn to questions once again. Appreciate every single one of them. Wish I could get to all questions, but we're going to try to get to as many as possible today. Brian, a listener, sent in one, and uh, he mentions seeing reference in social media to a decline or deterioration in American conservative thought from someone like William Buckley Jr. to some of the big names in terms of, say, the social media right today. He then mentions some related issues, and then he basically asked the question of, quote, how conservatism has shifted from a figure like William F. Buckley to uh, some of the more famous figures today and what it means for the state of conservatism today, end quote. So let me just answer as succinctly and clearly as I can, and that is the fact that I think conservatism is an ongoing project which, by definition, has continuity. I think, however— that there's a confusion between conservatism and being on the right. And so politically, I would say the right has changed a very great deal. But I would say that conservatism hasn't changed nearly as much. And so I'm going to say some of the big names who are often called conservative, I'm going to say they're really not conservative. They don't act in conservative ways. They don't actually articulate conservative truths and principles. I'll say they're on the right. 
The right has changed a very great deal, but so has the left. So just looking at the two big ideological options, the right and the left have both changed a very great deal. The right is more right. The left is more left in one sense. But conservatism, which is on the right in one sense, I'm going to argue is a coherent and continuing conserving way of thinking. And I'm glad to tell you that, you know, a lot of the thinking of the major conservative uh thought leaders and uh, others over the course of the last several decades, their thought still continues. And uh, there is still a conservative remnant. And one of the quandaries for conservatives right now is, you know, where conservatism now falls on this spectrum. There's no doubt it's on the right. But frankly, there are people on the right that true conservatives don't recognize as being legitimately conservative, which is why you see some very unconservative behavior out of some people who are unquestionably on the right. Another listener wrote in, thoughtful question, appreciate it, Cody, uh, asking about parachurch ministry and uh, just asking, what's the point? Is it true that there needs to be some sort of extension of the church, reaching people that the church cannot? And then he raises some significant concerns about some parachurch ministries, even moving into more uh, liberal ideologies, uh, more uh, liberal theology, you know, etc., and I uh, mentioned some names. I'm not going to mention the names. I'm simply going to say, Cody, you're on to something very, very important here. Um, Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It, it is the church for whom Christ died. And, and it is the church that is the body of Christ. And it is the church who are the new covenant people redeemed by Christ and uh, united to Christ and reigning with Christ uh, throughout ages to come. And uh, yet at the same time, it's just honest to say there have been times when churches or congregations abandoned together to do together what they couldn't do individually. And in some cases, uh, and by some means to focus ministry in a particular direction, that's why you end up with mission boards, for example, uh, in the rise of the modern missionary movement. And uh, that's how you end up with many other things, including, say, Christian schools and theological seminaries, et cetera. So to some extent, all those institutions are uh, parachurch, that is to say, beyond the church in some way. And I, I think it's really important that we keep that distinction. And you're talking, and I appreciate this, you make reference to working, you and your wife working with, with elementary school children in a local church, teaching them a catechism, teaching them the scripture, well, that's absolutely precious, and uh, that just points to the Im importance of the local church. And so I think, first of all, we have to recognize that the priority is the local church, and no parachurch entity should exist or be supported that detracts from the local church and that doesn't add to and strengthen the local church. And every parachurch institution organization should be seen as something temporary that will one day pass away whereas the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will never pass away. I don't want to slam the door completely on parachurch ministries and organizations. Uh, that would be a bit hypocritical, because I believe that they can serve a useful purpose, but they have to be governable by the church and accountable to the church, and they have to serve the church and not undermine the church. Otherwise, the church needs to close them and, and put an end to them. And these organizations should never threaten the local church. Uh, I've been in situations in which I thought the local church was weakened because of the involvement of some of those people in the church in a parachurch organization that kind of siphoned off uh, so much of the attention. 
and there's so many of the resources of the church rather than in the church itself. I see that as a big problem. On the other hand, you know, I'm in a denomination where you could have any number of churches who would cooperate together to be able to send a missionary, and that's a parachurch reality. It's a very sweet one. So I think the most important thing is to recognize that Christ died for his church. The church is his eternal people, and uh, it is the church that will stand inviolable forever, not a parachurch organization. All such parachurch structures have to serve the church, be accountable to the church, uh, show their worth in, uh, in, in that service, faithfulness to the church, and every single one of them will one day pass away, but not Christ's church. By the way, you know, Cody, you mentioned children. I just want to say, I think one of the most wonderful things we need to recognize is that there are so many people who grow up and say, you know, as a child, I grew up not only in this family and not only was given to these parents and raised by them, uh, I was raised within the nurture of this church and uh, mentioning a congregation in particular. I think that's very, very sweet. And, uh, That's the kind of thing that should be said of a church rather than of a parachurch ministry. But next, a question sent in. Bryson is asking about news, uh, asking if I believe there's truly a way to receive unbiased news, um, or does worldview always dictate a bias and inhibit our ability to convey unbiased news reporting? Uh, Other good parts of the question he kind of plays out here. You know, Bryson, I want to say, number one, this is just a very important issue in terms of Christian honesty. And that is to say that every single one of us as a thinker, as a mind, is uh, is trapped within the limitations of what it means to be one mind. And not only that, it's trapped within the reality of the fact that, yes, our, our mind reflects the fact that we're made in God's image. Uh, it also reflects the fact that we are corrupted by sin. And so, you do not have, and you have never met an unbiased mind. And sometimes, and here's something that's deeply, deeply important to us, just as a Christian recognition, a matter of Christian humility, we don't even know our mind well enough to know exactly where all the biases are. We, we, we don't even know ourselves well enough to check all of our prejudices and the limitations on our thinking, or perhaps even the bent or prejudice uh, of our thinking. We, we just work at that, but quite frankly, there isn't an unbiased mind. You've never met one. You aren't one. You'll never meet one. Not in this age. But I'm not surrendering to bias as just a, an ocean of bias in which we're stuck, an ocean of prejudice in which, you know, we are, we're, we're simply stuck for the rest of our lives. I want to say that we can learn as Christians to think critically, to try to check and, uh, and uh, take into account Uh, matters of bias. We can train ourselves to listen for evidence of bias. And one of those that's so important is just thinking in terms of worldview, recognizing that there are presuppositions that are always behind what people say and how people think. And even if they don't make the tie between those presuppositions and the statements they make, uh, we uh, have to learn to think in those terms. And it's not just about listening to someone else speak. Okay, once they say that, they say this, I can connect the dots. Here's the presupposition behind that. We also have to understand that the same thing's true of ourselves. And our job is not just to know what our presuppositions are, but to make certain that we have the right presuppositions based in Scripture and that those presuppositions lead to the right thoughts and the right judgments and the right choices. So, you know, I'll say, Bryson, when it comes to the news, 
It's all that, just more so. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because the news, by the way, is in one form or another a product. And so we're back to the fact that if it's a product, it's being sold to consumers. And that's why, for example, we've had the massive change just in the television media from what we saw as kind of the three brands of standard television, even black and white in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Now you've got these you know, cable television networks and streaming media platforms, and frankly, they're just directed to one segment of the news-consuming public. So one platform will just say, we'll give these people more of what they want. You have another network that says, we'll give these people more of what they want. And, you know, one of the ways to kind of recognize what's going on there is to expose ourselves to multiple arguments. And so, Bryson, that's an important issue here. So, in other words, we're not just listening to ourselves. We're not just listening to our friends. It's one of the reasons why on the briefing, I often, indeed most often, cite news sources that would have a, a, a worldview commitment very different than my own, and I think listeners to the briefing, which is a part of what makes it work, because we really want to hear how the world is thinking in order to also understand, most crucially, how we are to think as Christians in this world, even if that's in contrast. But, you know, the last question you ask is, uh, should we seek out unbiased answers, or does our answer need to reflect our Christian worldview. Well, that's where I want to say I, I think it's really important that Christians talk through these issues. And that's what part of what I try to do on the briefing. I, I try to help Christians who think through these issues, speaking as a Christian, primarily to Christians. But I also want to subject what we say to, uh, well, to the fact that there's a public debate on these issues, and I'm making these statements in public, so we're risking some public conflict with some of these statements and a public collision of worldviews. And I'm just arguing for Christians, that is not at all cost to be avoided, to put it bluntly. So, Bryson, well, thanks so much for sending the question, and uh, hopefully you've helped us all to think more faithfully on these questions. Also glad to get a question from someone asking about uh, what it would mean to teach in a a public or a secular context, uh, to teach, or for that matter, to be, say, a college administrator. Uh, in a secular context. And uh, my response to this question is to say, I think that situation is uh, shaky, and it's going to become shakier. It's frankly going to become more and more untenable, and that is because the entire culture of education in general, and higher education particularly, is turning in ways that are increasingly openly antagonistic to Christian conviction. And uh, so, you know, things come up pretty routinely uh, in in my world, uh, you know, where I hear from people in the secular context who are saying, look, you know, our department just passed this policy. Or uh, if I stated what I believed out loud, I would never get tenure. Or, you know, I uh, was asked a question by a student in a classroom. And when I answered it, honestly, you know, now I'm facing a, a very hostile environment uh, on this campus. You know, culture follows a certain sense of uh, momentum and trajectory, and every culture has its own rules. And increasingly, the secular world of academia, it's just tightened to those rules and tightened to that world to such an extent that it doesn't put up with much dissent at all. And someone coming as a genuinely committed biblical Christian is going to be out of step with those institutions. Now, not only when it comes to, say, policy A and C and, you know, 
see paragraph C, subsection S, is increasingly at the very heart of the entire enterprise. And I'm not saying that it's impossible right now for a Christian, a faithful, conservative, believing Christian to serve, you know, in any of these contexts. I'm answering the question. I think it's going to become more and more untenable and less and less likely moving forward. And I think the same thing's true in some other arenas, including uh, at least uh, many sectors of the, say, American commercial world, American corporations, where you know, many of the things we're hearing from campuses, we're now also hearing from employees and brand name American companies where they're told, you know, sign this, celebrate that, agree to this, or there's not a future for you in this company. I have long stated that I believe there are certain professions that are going to be closed to convictional Christians in my lifetime. And I, I'm pretty sure that's that's absolutely certain. There are going to be some professions that are going to be more and more difficult, if not nearly impossible, for Christians to enter because of the cognitive convictional price that is charged on the front end, or the uh, ethos and the code of ethics and the rules of the organization once you're in. So I'm not going to name them. We've talked about that in greater detail uh, otherwise. But you know, already we've heard from places in uh, in other countries. We've heard from schools in other countries where, for instance, to get into medical school, you have to agree to perform abortions because otherwise the argument is you're wasting a medical education. And, uh, you know, there's more to it than that, just in terms of the demand for absolute uniformity that comes from the left. And that's just one indication of, I think, the kind of tension points that are going to come. So, you know, I'm often asked the question, should Christians stay in these jobs? And my argument is, well, that's one of the reasons why you need the local church to give counsel on that. I don't think you need counsel from, you know, someone just speaking from a speaker on that. But uh, I hope nonetheless to speak the truth and to speak wisdom uh, in this. And uh, that is to say, I think we need to set up front, you know, here's a line that I know I can't cross. Uh, I want to make that line very clear to myself. That's a line I can't cross. And I want to think about it often enough and pray about it often enough that I'm going to know it when it comes. And when that moment comes, I'm going to know, you know, that's the line that as a Christian, I can't cross. But then a very related question coming in from a mom, and it's a very thoughtful question. And it's one that in one sense, you just can't answer with a an absolute yes or no, a part of living with fear and trembling in this world, seeking to be faithful. Sometimes there are just some issues in which you have to say, well, we're going to have to talk about that a bit further. So this particular mom very sensitively asked, you know, should Christian parents avoid putting their kids in public colleges in all cases? And I think just given all the words in that question, I can't say in all cases, I believe that to be true, but I can tell you in all cases, I have concerns. Uh, But those concerns, you know, quite frankly, are even higher in some institutions that claim to be Christian, but aren't seriously uh, committed to Christian truth. And so, you know, just saying, you know, public colleges on the one hand versus private colleges on the other hand, I wouldn't trust a lot of private colleges either. Uh, but when it comes to the public college or the public educational world, the world of public higher education, it's often a mixed bag, but we know that the the operating ethos of that entire universe is moving progressively left. And uh, we know that it's going to be harder and harder But this is, again, where I think knowing the child, knowing the program of study, uh, knowing, uh, as I often say, even more important than the the campus where the student studies is the congregation where the student is embedded. And so putting all that together, I think, you know, uh, Christian parents with fear and trembling and with deep love and concern for their children, well, they're just in a better position to know, you know, what is best for this particular individual 
child, this son or daughter, what will be best. But I'll tell you, I know one very good thing is that this question reflects the fact that Christian parents are thinking about this, at least understanding in a a new and profoundly urgent way what is at stake. And I'll tell you, another thing that's so encouraging by this is the acknowledgement by parents that the context of education really matters. The context really matters. You are not only putting your child on a campus, you're putting a young person into an intellectual and moral context. And uh, I wish more Christian parents took that into adequate consideration. Okay, one final question for today. It's a big question. It's going to have to have a fairly short answer. We'll see if we can do this well. The question is, is it appropriate for Christians to pledge allegiance to the flag? And I believe the right Christian answer is, yes, it can be appropriate for Christians to pledge allegiance to the flag, but we have to understand relative allegiance, which is to say, we offer no ultimate allegiance to any flag or to any nation Our soul is owned, our destiny is in the hands of no worldly regime or worldly power. But even as we are put here in this age, and even as we are situated in a country, there is a proper patriotism and a proper allegiance. There can even be a proper pledge of allegiance, but it can never be a pledge of ultimate allegiance. Any government that claims ultimate allegiance doesn't deserve not only that allegiance, it doesn't deserve our pledge. But as I said, I think I have to keep it short. Yes, a Christian can say the Pledge of Allegiance, but can't offer it as any ultimate allegiance. Thanks for listening to The Briefing. For more information, go to my website at albertmoeller.com. You can find me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash Albert Moeller. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Today I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'll meet you again on Monday for The Briefing.